2: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest running conservative talk show.
1: He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
0: And I think he says that every day because he's just trying to be nice to me. Good, (laughs) Good afternoon. Welcome. Good to have you on board. It is Thursday, the 6th of February. And as we launch in today's program, great to have you with us for another edition of Lifeline. Of course, each and every day at this time, we address issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. We plan to do more of that today. We're going to dive in a little bit later on in this first hour into another survey that's been released by the George Barna Group that really reveals not only what's happening in terms of faith in America today, but in particular, the faith of 20-somethings and the challenges that the church is facing, and while they are are gargantuan at multiple levels, here's the good news. Fundamental, historical, orthodox, biblical teaching and preaching can fix, if not everything, certainly most all, of what belies the church today. What are we talking about? Well, we'll reveal that when Dr. Rick Durst from Gateway Seminary joins us a little bit later on in tonight's program. But first, let me introduce a familiar voice to KFAX listeners. He is the Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee and, of course, the Executive Director of the California Pro-Life Council. Brian Johnson and I have known each other for Many, many, many years. In fact, I dare say he's probably been a guest on this program for just about all 30 of our 30 years of existence on the air here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, Brian's got a very important job. His job, in large part, is to help you and I understand what's going on in the challenges to defend life, and most importantly, why it is that life matters and why it is that we, as pro-life people, people of faith, need to take a stand and speak up for the unborn. Brian Johnston joins us now by phone. And uh, Brian, I guess the big reveal here tonight for listeners, and we are so thrilled um, to have your program, Life Matters, join the KFAX lineup starting this coming Saturday at 11.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. So let me say, a, uh, not that you haven't always been a member of the KFAX family, but even now a, a deeper member <laughs> of the KFAX family. So a hearty welcome.
1: Well, Craig, thank you. And I've always deeply appreciated the work of KFAX and its commitment to stand for what's right and true. And I'm, all of us as Christians have to remember what Christ himself said about himself. He said, for this reason came I into the world to bear witness to the truth. And if you're a Christian, that's actually your calling too. You don't want to affirm something that's not true. You actually have been given a gift, a very precious gift of your own life, but also if you're a Christian, of spiritual understanding. And so we have to develop that. Life matters, as you know, Craig, is committed to the principle of the right to life and to folks understanding what it means there's a battle there's a very real battle of ideas right now and if people aren't prepared for that battle they lose you are going to lose the battle if you're not prepared so you have to get the right information have the right understanding and then go forth into our culture a lot of times in the past we've talked about this It's a a tendency for all of us, and that's to view this as a battle of our personal faith, our personal theology. And on the Right to Life issue, it's exactly the opposite. And our founders said the same thing. They said it's a self-evident truth, that it's something that we've been given, every human being has been given this gift by their Creator, the gift of life. It didn't come from the government and as they were founding a government they wanted to create a just government they asserted that the first principle of a just government is to protect the lives of those that it governs and that's the lives of the innocent so obviously the abortion issue very very big in that that's a great violation that came in 73 but if we're going to win this battle we have to understand all of its ramifications. And that's what Life Matters is committed to, is understanding the principles at stake. And then in this battle, and every day we know there's different aspects of this that are being attacked, whether it be stem cell research, embryonic stem cell research, very different from the other forms of stem cell research, or the issue of end of life care, or the issue of, you name it, school-based health clinics. The reality is that Western civilization has a very simple premise, and it's actually very simple. It comes to us through Judeo-Christian tradition, but it's this. Human beings are more than merely animals. There is something unique about the human person, and that's why the laws need to reflect that. That's why we brought an end to slavery. That's why we're going to bring an end to legalized abortion on demand. We're going to do it, because... The facts are on our side, and we need to stand on those facts and assert these principles. So it's an exciting time to be alive. There's a lot to learn, and there's a lot to do. As you know, Craig, we routinely, at least once a week, we talk about some of the immediate challenges. And as we see in Washington, D.C. and in the pop media, many of those challenges are misrepresented. Words are twisted for their own purposes and the value of the human person is dismissed, and we're seeing this huge challenge culturally, and we, if anybody needs to be prepared, be prepared as a Christian. We are the salt. We are the ones that have to bring people back to reality as God has made it. It's a self-evident truth. So that's what this battle's about, and it's exciting, and I'm really honored to join with you there and uh, with folks across California, because we've got a diverse team of people who believe exactly that. We must end the human holocaust of abortion and do it in a way that is reasonable and appropriate and just. So I'm excited to be part of your team.
0: Well, and of course, to to put this in broader perspective for listeners, uh, uh, Brian has been a fixture on this program Going back, as I say, I I think pretty near almost all of our 30 years on the air. We, We entered into our 31st year in November of last year, started our 31st year. And over the course of time, as we talk about the issue of life, understand that this is far broader, far deeper, and has the potentiality of impacting every one of us. And let me explain why. Oftentimes, people narrowly define pro-life as meaning, oh, I know what you're about. You're not in favor of abortion. Well, certainly that's true. But the broader issue of life is one that extends from womb to cradle to grave. And as we've learned, um, this is not only poignant and pertinent in relationship to a woman who finds herself asking questions and seeking answers in the middle of an unplanned or a crisis pregnancy, but even for end-of-life issues in relationship to uh, such things as so-called physician-assisted suicide, uh, that really puts every life at risk because then suddenly, if you reach a certain age and you're considered at some point by certain sectors of society to no longer be viable viable or um, able to contribute, uh, it's easy to say, well, then let's dispense with that life because it's no longer of value. But we know from a scriptural context, from a biblical context, that all life matters. And so uh, as much as Brian's appearances on this program down through the years have been to help challenge you, educate you, illuminate you on why this is an important issue, why it is imperative that Christians be involved to stand on the front line for life because we are the beneficiaries of the very life that God has himself breathed into each and every one of us, and that we are all made in God's image. But likewise, to be able to now with the launching of Life Matters Saturday mornings at 1130 a.m. here on KFAX, um, provide Brian with a deeper platform where he can explore the issues of the day in relationship to this broader topic of life and hopefully not only educate you but enlist you in the battle to stand up for all those whose lives are literally in the balance, particularly in a state like California. So we invite you to mark your calendars. Tune in every Saturday morning, eleven thirty AM right here on KFAX for Life Matters with Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee and the Executive Director of the California Pro Life Council. And uh, Brian, again, we're, we're thrilled for the launch, and we're going to be with um, uh, all of our ears keenly attuned to KFAX this Saturday morning at 11 a.m. for the inaugural program of Life Matters with Brian Johnston right here on KFAX. All right, we'll get a chance to talk to uh, Brian, everybody say, well, does that mean he's not going to be on the show anymore? Oh, no. He will continue to be a fixture on this program for as long as he can tolerate me. (laughs) Brian Johnston, our thanks to you, my friend. Again, the Executive Director of the California Pro-Life Council and Western Regional Director for the National Right to Life Committee. Tune in Saturday mornings, 1130 a.m. for Life Matters, right here on AM 1100 KFAX. All right, 5.15, let's step aside, get you updated on some traffic as we head over to the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the Conversation 5.20 on your Thursday ride home. We're going to deal with an important topic tonight, and let's sort of set the stage, if we can all agree, I think, uh, as we look back on our life experience, and certainly if you're somebody at the older end of the continuum, you can shout a hearty amen to this. But I think largely speaking, when we're growing up in our 20s and early 30s, we sort of move from that notion of our parents figured everything out for us to that notion of we need to figure this out. Later on in our later 30s and into our 40s and certainly early 50s, we have come to the conclusion, I've got this thing figured out. Then from our mid to later 50s into our 60s, we kind of have a little bit of doubt that comes back and we say to ourselves, gee, I hope I figured this thing out right. And then later on in our 60s and 70s, perhaps we conclude it's too late to figure anything out. Uh, that continuum, of course, is is different for everybody. Um, And while certainly, hopefully, if you're grounded firmly in Christ, that sense of having figured things out stays with you throughout the entirety of your life, for growing percentiles of 20-somethings in America today, that notion of, we need to figure this thing out, but we're not quite sure if this can be figured out, is becoming a growing problem, and particularly so for the church. Now... At one level, you could say, my goodness, what's happening here, Uh, the church is facing these huge challenges where young people reach their late teens and head off into college, and they sort of abandon the faith of their fathers and sometimes return, oftentimes don't return. And while we might ponder how problematic that is, I'm going to argue tonight that it actually presents a wonderful opportunity for the church, provided, of course, we've got our theology in right order. And to help us write that order of our theology, we're joined tonight in studio by Dr. Rick Durst from Gateway Seminary. He is the author of a number of books, um, including Reordering the Trinity, Six Movements of God in the New Testament, and um, always great to have him as a guest in studio many years with the um, Bay Area campus of uh, Gateway Seminary, formerly known, uh, for those of you who have been around for a while, as Golden Gate Baptist Theological in Mill Valley, now right here in the city of Fremont, Doctor Durst, good to see you again.
2: Thank you, Craig, for inviting me. Appreciate and uh, it.
0: let me introduce to our listeners uh, a, a returning member of your team, uh, the new director of the Bay Area campus of uh, Gateway Seminary, Doctor uh, Max Stabenow. And d- did I just did I just <laughs> elevate you to Doctor, or not? you well, working on it. May May will be the day. May will be the day. Okay, his so hand is reaching out just That's just right. about there. Okay, right. so we're we're just kind of priming the pump so you can get comfortable hearing that uh, That's right. That it title. sounds great. Sounds right. good. <laughs> well, uh, welcome to both of you. And um, th- this is a topic that the church off and on, I think, takes serious, and then we kind of forget about. And then uh, the Barna Group comes out with another survey. And, and typically, as these fall about every five or ten years, we discover that things get mired deeper and deeper and deeper. And the percentile of young people that are going through... Not a midlife crisis, but a a quarter-life crisis in that uh, teens and early 30s arena uh, is certainly growing. There was a recent survey that found that people between the age of 25 and 33 report not only experiencing a so-called quarter-life crisis, much of that related to their faith, with a sense of rootlessness, being paralyzed and where they're at in life, and even a sense of loneliness, which I, which is interesting. And, you know, when we look at this, I think the big question, and I'll pose this to Dr. Durst first, the big question is as we see more and more young people leaving the church in their early 20s and sometimes never returning, um, we can kind of conclude that there's got to be a reason behind this. If it's not failure of our faith itself, and let's begin with the premise that it is not, that there must be something about the way the church is doing church today that is causing young people to feel as if the church itself can no longer provide viable answers.
2: Well, I do think the ways, uh, the questions that are coming up are not easy questions. They're difficult questions. And there's kind of a fog, an information fog, so you can get both sides, but nobody tells you how to get consensus in that. Max and I were just talking about. Uh, churches that don't address the hard questions. I think it's because we want easy answers. We want answers that are unambiguous. And it's not always that easy to put it that way. A lot of biblical truth is paradoxical. It's mystery. God is mystery. You can't explain him away. You have to enjoy the mystery. So uh, my experience has been that when I preach or teach and I deal with the really hard questions that folks are facing, like the questions of, of gender identity, uh, questions of um, you know, how do we handle it when uh, those in authority seem to be acting uh, with um, violence against minorities? How do you deal with that? I remember asking one of our students. She was a lieutenant in one of the Bay Area Police Forces, She's an African-American woman, and I asked her, do you have any children? She says, yeah, I've got a son and a grandson. And I asked her just after the events in Missouri, what do you tell them so that uh, they, they'll act in a way that will you know, allow them to survive? And she was so fantastic. She said, well, just do what the authorities say, whether you think they're right or wrong, make sure you, you survive. Another person told me, what I tell my boys to do is put a stuffed animal in the back window – so they know you're, you're not just a, a gangster or something like that if you're stopped. But then um, this friend, Yvonne, she went on to say, I know that on this earth there is no justice, but I know there is justice above. Mm. And I think because many of our churches don't teach well on eschatology or even deal with the issue at all, people don't have a hope in difficult times.
0: And, and there's perhaps an even broader challenge that we're facing, not only sort of this paradigm shift away from orthodox christianity and kind of the tendency towards feel good preaching coming from the pulpits, but Max I, there's there's also perhaps a challenge here that didn't exist two or three generations ago. Two or three generations ago, as you were sharing your faith, it was a matter of convincing someone of the truth, the truth of the claims of Christ, the truth of of God's love for us and Christ's work on the cross. Today, a larger percentile of people need to be convinced that the truth, meaning that the truth even exists. Oftentimes, you find young people that will suggest that there can be multiple truths residing in the same room, all simultaneously at the same time. Your truth, my truth, somebody else's truth, that there isn't a common or single unifying truth. So with that kind of a challenge, it's almost as if we as the church, in sharing our faith and in evangelizing and even teaching our faith to a congregation, need to take a couple of steps back and begin with, that truth is let alone what the truth is, based on Scripture. Would you agree?
3: Yeah, I would say that um, because we have failed to teach God's Word as our sole authority, uh, we're neglecting so many topics that we should be able to give an answer to. We know truth because Christ is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. But because of our failure to really teach God's Word and to submit ourselves to its full authority, people aren't seeing the practice of truth lived out in our lives. Uh, we can't espouse a scripture, and we're not living according to the scripture. And so young people are looking at us, and they're saying, well, you don't really believe what you're saying. because mm. I can't see it evidenced in your life.
0: So it's not just teaching it. It's living what we teach. And there is a fundamental disconnect to that, isn't there? I mean, in the sense that a lot of Christians sort of exercise this, on Sunday, I go to church, and this is who I am. And on Monday, I go back to being this other person the balance of the week, and I'll circle back again to my faith and my identity as a Christian when I reach Sunday again, if I even make it multiple Sundays in a row.
2: Yeah. I think that old saying, walk your talk. Um, I told my wife today, I said, you know, uh, during seasons of high excitement, um, even spiritual excitement, you know, Somebody may jump up and dance. And I said, it doesn't matter how high you jump. If when you hit the ground, you don't walk straight. You don't walk with the Lord in a way that's credible.
0: That makes sense. And, you know, coming to also your point earlier, and you touched on this as well, Max, that notion of the failure to teach solid, clear-cut, historical, biblical truth. Um, One of the surveys released by Pew Research amongst, again, 18 to 29-year-olds, um, and asking them where they received their guidance in relationship to determining right and wrong, 24% said their faith. 16% said philosophy. 47% said common sense. and <laughs> There's not much of that around these days. 12% said science. And 2% said, well, they didn't really know where their sense of right and wrong came from. Uh, it I would be interesting to see a survey if they had been done five or six generations ago in the 1930s and 40s and see how drastically different, perhaps, those answers might be, particularly in relationship to receiving guidance and a sense of right and wrong based on biblical truth.
2: I, we, saw, uh, we started an alpha course uh, just uh, on Tuesday, and the way that course started, they were street interviews in London and uh, the East Coast, asking that very question. It was interesting how many of them said, I don't, I don't answer hard questions, or I call my grandmother, <laughs> or I Google it. But when we find out that a lot of answers that we're receiving are artificially arranged and we're supposed to you know, ascribe to the almighty algorithm, and we realize somebody's got their thumb down on the scale and weighting it the way they want it to go or what they want us to buy. That's a problem if that's your source as opposed to, as Max was saying, looking at the Scripture. Now, one problem about looking at Scripture is uh, I think it was G.K. Chesterton. He said some people when they read Scripture, they do it like a tourist. They go out to see what they told they were going to see as a verse to a traveler who goes out to see what's there. And, you know, a lot of people will say, I've been reading the Bible for years and I just found this. It was always there. It was right in front of me. That's a traveler. They saw something that was always there waiting for them to see. And a lot of these unanswered questions, it's right there in the Word if we'll look and listen.
0: And, and I think that's that's so key is the willingness to look and listen and then accept what you see. I I think, sadly, sometimes we've seen a growing propensity, particularly with some of these offshoot branch movements of, you know, word of faith, name it and claim it, things of that sort, where a lot of scriptures looked at simply as a means or a source of proof texting. This is what I believe. Now I'm going to find some scripture that I think seems to support this conclusion so that I can go about my business, and if I'm ever challenged, be able to refer back to that Scripture most frequently taken out of context. And, and that certainly is not how we're told to study Scripture at all, is it? Going yeah, the British the scholar
2: N.T. Wright, he says, when I find something in Scripture I don't like or I can't understand, what I try to do is take it into my life, asking God's grace, and obey it until I can't understand it. I love that notion.
0: And I think the notion, too, of Scripture will bear out Scripture. Yes, and Scripture should always be tried and tested in the light of what we see in Scripture. And you know, if your preacher gets up on Sunday morning and says you're about to see or hear something that you'll never read in the Bible, warning lights should, <laughs> yes. should clearly go off.
2: I, I remember as a new believer uh, reading the Bible. Uh, first off, when I started reading the Bible, I didn't realize God would talk to me through Scripture. It was a delight, but uh, I still trusted in my own judgment more than Scripture. So I would do it my way, and it regularly failed. And then I would do it God's way, and it worked. And I said, oh, you know, I think I'll just skip the failure part. I'll mm-hmm. just do it yeah, what yeah, God says.
0: Lean, lean not onto your own understanding, right? <laughs> Dr. Rick Durst today with us in studio, along with Max Stabenow. He is the new director of the Bay Area campus here, the Fremont campus of Gateway Seminary. And you can get more information, by the way, about Gateway online at gs.edu. That's gs.edu. Let's take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. 534. Let's get caught up on traffic for you right now as you make your way wherever you might be headed on this Thursday. The latest now from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to The Conversation. With us today in studio is Dr. Rick Durst. He, for many years, has been the director of the Bay Area Campus of Gateway Seminary, and uh, will continue in the role of working as a professor of historical theology uh, at the seminary. And He's also going to spend more time with the grandkids, a little bit more time writing, which is good. We like it when he writes one of his last books, Reordering the Trinity, Six Movements of God in the New Testament. Also with us today in studio is the newly appointed director of the Bay Area area campus of Gateway Seminary, Max Stebenau. We're talking about some surveys by the Barna Organization and Pew Research that really sort of pulls back the cover on attitudes, particularly amongst young people, the 20-somethings in the church today, and some of the challenges that they are facing that, in reality, should be a warning sign to the church. Now, let me cite one example here that I think can sort of set all of us back on our heels. A recent survey by George Barna's organization found that 50% of young adults worldwide who identify as or have a connection to the Christian faith say the church can't answer their life questions. And Dr. Durst, I mean, again, I'm dating myself here, but when I was a young man growing up, I had been raised to believe that when all all else failed— you could go to the church. You could go to the Word to find answers. Fifty percent, fifty percent say the answers are not there.
2: Wow. Well, I think things are complicated today, and it would be you don't want to make a mistake if you're a pastor or a preacher. But we need to relax and put our confidence in in the Scripture. Um, uh, recently, uh, in the newspaper, there was a story about a uh, a, a woman driving this giant black SUV through one of the grocery store parking lots after rain. She's a four-wheel drive vehicle, monstrous vehicle, and she's daintily driving around the puddles. Uh, don't but, want to get any mud splash. Yeah, on that. I, I, you know, and I think a lot of people te- treat Christianity like that. But really, the Bible, the faith, it's a four-wheel drive vehicle. It can handle any terrain. We just need to take it on. And To engage in dialogue is a wonderful way for two people or a group of people to become one. Uh, You know, the scripture uh, that says, uh, train up a child in the way he should go and when he's old. The other verse that goes with this often is spare the rod and spoil the child." child. Well, if you look really close at that verse, the rod in that passage doesn't mean for punishment. It means for leadership and guidance. And the child... In that is not a young child, it means an emerging adult child, so what should happen is not just the pastor but parents and grandparents need to stay close enough as our children and grandchildren become adults so that we can offer leadership to them uh, and because it 's there now, I do think that um, you know handing down Dogmatic short answers, this is the way it used to be, is, is not the way to go with this generation. But to, to listen to their question and how they're holding it, to ask questions and see what their ideas are so far, where'd you get that idea? What do you think about that? Um, here's how Scripture lays those pieces out so we can solve it with them in the light of Scripture.
0: You know, it's fascinating about some of this research Max, is the fact that uh, contrary to to some previous thought on this topic, it's not that there is a departure from interest in things spiritual. Um, In fact, if anything, much of the research demonstrates that that sense of wanting to have a spiritual connection with someone or something is very real, very strong. Certainly from a Christian viewpoint, we would say, well, certainly there's that God-shaped hole in you that's waiting for a relationship with God himself, with the Creator through Christ Jesus. Um, so it's not that people don't have a sense of, of wanting to fulfill some sort of spiritual quest. Uh, it's that they're not sure where to go to find answers to those questions. And I think sometimes we, as the church, have felt that well, if you ask a question, that's that's not good, and we're not prepared to give those sorts of answers. Or, as you say, Doctor Durst, we give those very quick, short, um, almost why are you asking me this sort of an answer, as opposed to being willing to understand that Scripture can stand on its own. I, I, I like the notion of understanding that the Bible is valid for instruction, revealing of sin, correcting error, and providing examples of righteous living. And so, to fear as if somehow Scripture cannot stand on its own, so to speak, is really a fallacious or erroneous viewpoint, is it not?
3: It definitely is. And in large part, if you think about the uh, younger generation, they're seeking answers, they're hoping for answers. But their whole life, all they're ever around are their peers. They're separated out in the same age group, from kindergarten all the way through school, even in the church. I was raised in the church. And I did not sit in a Bible study with my mom until I was over 18 years old. So if I'm looking around me and I have answers or I have questions and I'm looking for answers, but all I see are my peers around me (laughs) and no adults, no people older than me that I can ask – I'm going to be lost.
0: I've always often wondered, why is it that we have children's church when there's no evidence of it in the first century church? And the notion of, and I know we do it because we don't want to be disturbed, but but the notion of separating out all of the young people instead of being side by side in the church congregation during the message, I always thought, wouldn't it be great if halfway through the message, pastor would pause for a moment and say, now, does anybody have any questions? And allow us to have more of that iron-sharpening-iron experience going on. What a profound difference potentially it might make in the faith and the stability of young people were that sort of
3: experience afforded them. That's right. And there is no uh, issue that we're facing in our culture that the Bible doesn't speak to. We're just not willing to dig into the Scriptures and give the answer, and then give the answer in a way that can be received, in a way that's from love and uh truly concerned for the individual or sometimes too too quick to give an answer before we've actually listened to the person's real needs and then came alongside of them and showed them the answer but committed to walking with them as they wrestle with it on their own it's
0: part of the issue here that perhaps suddenly our religion has become more fear-based than faith-based and i ask that question because you'll often hear it said Amongst pastors, if there's a private conversation or you overhear two or three of them talking at the lunch counter, well, if I preached on that topic this Sunday, oh boy, half the church would get up and walk out. I can't dare, I can't take that. I know the Bible says that, but I can't take that position from the pulpit. You know, we're in the middle of a fundraising drive right now, and that thermometer is not going to get any redder if I preach on that topic. So suddenly, it's almost as if we feel as if we are in a race to try and be popular. Be acceptable, be comfortable, because we have the fear that we either might drive somebody out or offend somebody. And yet, Scripture tells me that the gospel itself is an offense to those that are in sin, that
3: are perishing. So why are we surprised? Well, we shouldn't be surprised. I think we are definitely more dollar-centric than we are Christ-centric. I think we're more concerned about maintaining our institutions, you know, institutional survival um, than we are about what Christ was uh, really focused on. You think about the Gospels and um, Jesus' disciples are are uh, staring at the temple and they're saying, look how amazing this is. And, and Jesus said, not one stone will be left unturned. You know, Jesus is focused on people. And not that buildings or or budgets are bad, but when that becomes our focus, then we always lose sight of the people. And if you lose sight of the people – you lose touch with the questions that they're wrestling with, and you lose uh, touch with the answers, which is God's word.
0: So we become more disconnected, and then the 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 few that are left, um, and I'm not speaking to to the the true remnant, but rather the those that are left, then comprise a church that is ineffective, that has largely been um, neutered. Uh, for which the enemy certainly does not fear whatsoever, and largely most of those on the outside looking in don't have any respect for and don't take us seriously.
2: Um, I'm going to. I'm teaching church history right now, Monday night. So
0: dive in. We got the right all guy right. here,
2: <laughs> and I'm going to try something a little bit different. You know, church history. We're in the second half, so we're starting with the Reformation, going all the way up to the present, but. People are wearing face masks because of the uh, the virus. And I thought, you know, at, at my house right now, we have two kinds of masks. Because I live in the North Bay, I have mass industrial masks in case there's a fire. Mm-hmm. And now we've got this for the virus. So two kinds of masks. And I think that's going to be, you know, they're calling it the new normal. Well, all right. So instead of, I'm going to get into Luther. So if you're in my class and are listening, yes, you better do your homework on Luther. But. I'm going to have a special handout on the gospel, Jesus, the gospel, and plagues. Because in the church history, there have been seasons of plagues and viruses all along. And what's advanced the gospel and the church in those times is how Christians took Jesus seriously and stayed with the sick. Stayed with their own sick. They didn't abandon them. Most of the people abandoned their family members, in order they're so afraid for their lives. But they not only did that, they also cared for the sick of others and buried them. And with Justinian in the 7th century, um, during the uh, 14th century when the Black Plague came, Christians, not all of them, but by and large, handled things differently. Uh, They weren't afraid of death. Christ is taking care of that. We we believe he's raised from the dead. We know we're going to rise from the dead. Absent from the
0: body is present with the Lord.
2: Yeah, I go to prepare a place for you Mm -hmm. um, that you'll be with me always. So we can respond not in fear, not in terror, anxiety, although we might have those feelings down. We can find our faith and our feet to live for the glory of the Lord.
0: If it is so that history is cyclical, and there's certainly plenty of evidence to prove that out, and you mention about what's happening right now with what may arguably become a plague. And then there's been news stories over the last two or three weeks about the significant arrival of locusts across the African plain, so much so that they have not seen this in 20 or 30 years. And you begin to look at this and say, well, the Bible talks about plagues. The Bible also talks about locusts. And then you look at the overall Spiritual maturity or lack thereof of the church today, uh, certainly in the West, and I want to be careful to suggest that, uh, that this is not meant to be a, a, a universal criticism. But where the shoe fits, please let's uh, let's put let's fit it, let's wear it. Um, but I have to wonder. You 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 reference Luther. Um, Is the church maybe reaching a point here where we're in the need of a modern-day Reformation where uh, maybe another Martin Luther, a man of righteousness, writes out the 99 points and goes up to whatever the modern-day equivalent is of the Wittenberg Church and nails it to the door?
2: I do think we need that. We need awakening. Um, There's a a statement about the Second Great Awakening. When they started prayer meetings in New York City— It was at noon, and businessmen started flooding this. And these business, these prayer meetings, noon prayer meetings spread across New York City, and the awakening came. And this commentator, he said, in those 30 days, all the devil had done in 300 years was undone in New York. And so if we want to see the calendar reset according to Christ, we need to gather together and pray share the gospel, care for people, and watch and see what God will do.
3: And I would add to that, we're quick to, um, you know, suggest the church isn't doing this or the church isn't doing that and kind of point to the institution. But it's we the people who make up the institution. And I think we have to acknowledge the fact that we have blown it. We need to confess our own Mm. sin and uh, repent of the fact that we're not making disciples. We're not taking the Great Commission serious. Um, until I personally acknowledge my failure and uh, confess and repent and ask Christ to you know, cleanse me of all my unrighteousness and then show me people that I can begin to invest in, we're not going to see a reformation. We're not going to see a change. Um, and that starts with me. And there really
0: does have to be that, that willingness and that heartbeat, that passion um, to not only be a disciple, but then as such to make disciples – and oftentimes it almost seems as if there is an attitude amongst the people in the pews that we want all the benefits that come with Christianity. We like the fellowship. We like it people come over to our house and pray for us if we're not feeling well. Uh, we like the notion that maybe God will put a new Cadillac in the driveway, whatever, whatever it might be, all of which seems to sort of uh, turn around fleshy desires as opposed to the genuine Acknowledgement of I am an individual in need of a Savior. Scripture reminds us that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And to see ourselves as that person in need of a Savior and then recognize what a great pearl of price uh, that has been sacrificed and given on our behalf. I mean, it's always been a mind blow for me. If you sit down and just try to think, wait a minute now, God himself, the very creator of the universe, cared enough about me that he's going to sacrifice his own son to be that final, permanent, forever sacrifice because we could never keep the law so that through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, death could be defeated on my behalf. I could be forgiven of my sin and walk in fellowship with God, so much so that he's going to even have a little place for me in heaven. I mean, just think through that for a moment and go, wait a minute here. There's, there, there, there's something I've got to... There's got to be a catch, right? <laughs> um, salvation is free, but uh, it, we were bought with a huge price. And sadly, I think maybe... Too often we don't focus enough on that so that we appreciate the tremendous faith that we enjoy, and then, I think if you put it in that context, it isn't that we have to share our faith it's that we want to share our faith.
3: Yeah, Francis Schaeffer was asked if he had an hour to talk to someone, how would he how would he do it? And he said he would take the first fifty minutes and talk about sin. Because until someone comes to the reality that they're a sinner, mm. the good news is meaningless. It doesn't It doesn't mean anything. And um, as Christians, we don't need to dwell on our sin. But the older I get, the more aware of how wretched I am and how desperate of a Savior uh, I am that I need. And the more uh, realization of that, the more compassion I have for others. It's easy to judge when you're sitting in your self-righteousness. But when you recognize that you deserve nothing but hell, like the next person, then there is no sin that they're dealing with that I cannot walk alongside and share the gospel with them. I'll probably get in trouble
0: by repeating this, but I had a call to the program the other day said, do do you have a problem with uh, Roman Catholicism in the fact that so many Catholic churches display a cross that's a crucifix, that Christ is physically uh, on? You know, because we as Christians understand that he's not on the cross, that he overcame the grave, and that's now, you know, an empty tomb. And I said, your point is a valid one, but there's also a notion that sometimes having that reminder of Christ's passion, of the suffering that he went through on our behalf, that brings about a greater sense of the gravity of the offense of sin. And what it mean meant for the very son of God, very God himself, to spill his blood on our behalf, that through that, we could be redeemed. And, 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 and maybe that's part of the disconnect here is that sometimes we, we, we wish to have a bloodless Christianity. We like all the good, comfortable, fun, easy, exciting stuff that goes with it. But that sin conversation, that sacrifice thing, that sanctification part, the blood being shed, wow, ooh, no, I don't want to talk about that. I'm okay with that if it's in the movies and it's part of my entertainment, but I don't want it part of
2: my faith. Well, I, I would take one step even before what Max brought up. To meet the living, holy God really humbles me. It takes me out of my comfort zone. Uh, we speak of the fear of the Lord and there may be trembling involved and when I see how holy and how pure he is then I see what I'm like do you remember the account of uh, Jesus uh, with Peter in the boat the fisherman you know Peter and and his crew and they cast out they catch all these fish they start pulling it in and all of a sudden it dawns on Peter it's Jesus that's doing this I'm in the boat with a holy guy and he he flops down in the boat with the fish and he says, go away from me because I'm a sinner. And then the next piece that Max was talking about, where I recognize that an infinite sacrifice has been given for me. That God himself, you know, before the foundation of the world, the Father, Son, and Spirit came to uh, the decision, the free choice that um, what was lost to God in sin would be brought back in the sun. Mm-hmm. And we have a high priest who's entered into the Holy of Holies and anchored our souls there. And we sang at chapel on uh, Monday night about him holding fast to us. I remember um, years ago hiking um, a, a goat rock beach and there was a steep cliff. And my, I didn't realize my son, three years old, was right behind me and, until I heard him sort of scream because he started to slide down. And I just grabbed his hand. I don't know if I hurt him or not, but he didn't slide anymore. I held fast to him. And that's the kind of hold the Lord has on us. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to be worried about anything. He's he's not going to let go.
0: That, that we're going to linger on that, that imagery for a moment because it's so poignant. And then we're going to come back to more of our conversation. Dr. Rick Durst with us today. Max Stabenow, both with the Gateway Seminary, Fremont Campus. Information, by the way, available on the web at gs.edu. Just think of Gateway Seminary, gs.edu. We'll take this time out, get you updated on some traffic. Back with more as Lifeline continues. 6.03 the clock and on traffic, the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. Okay, time. Try-